Have you ever considered um, that a lot of people put a lot of stock into where one sits? Uh, you know, uh, whether it's at home or it's here at the congregation, you know, there's certain pews that we like to sit in. Uh, you know, we put a lot of stock into where we sit. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we went to the Freed Hardeman Lectureship uh, to the, uh, for the first time when I was in preaching school. And this, this was the first time I had been there. And we walked into Lloyd Auditorium. And if you've ever been there, you know, it's a, a big, massive place. It could sit almost 3,000 individuals. And there's lots of seats, plenty of seats for everyone. And so as we were sitting down for the lectureship, my friend, fellow student, he and his wife and their six-month-old baby sat in the very back corner. They sat in the very back corner because, you know, if if the baby started rustling or making noise, they wanted to get up and easily leave the room and not disturb the other uh, people there. But as they were sitting, as the lectureship was about to start, a certain gentleman came and tapped him on the shoulder and said, excuse me, sir. You know, I've been coming to these lectures for the past 20 years, and that's where I sit. And, and so my friend, being a humble guy, you know, he, he got up and they moved and they let the, the gentleman sit down in his seat because it had his seat on or his name on the seat and everything was fine. But we do. We put a lot of stock into where we sit. Uh, you know, parents, when we uh, purchase a car seat for our child for the first time, you know, we're going to research it. We're going to invest a lot of money into it because we want what's safe for our children. And when you're, when you're in high school, you know, you want to ride shotgun with your buddies. That's a special seat to ride shotgun. Uh, if you're a thrill seeker and you, you ride, like riding roller coasters, uh, you might give up, uh, you know, riding in the middle somewhere because you want to sit in the front or you want to sit in the very back. You go to a, um, a sporting event or a concert, you're going to pay a lot more for those seats right here than those way in the back. You know, you're getting the same product, you're seeing the same event or listening to the same music, but you're going to pay much more for those seats right there because those are valuable. You know, I've only flown on an airplane two or three times in my life, but I know that people want to sit in the aisle or they want to sit on the window seat. Nobody wants to sit in that middle section. But the point that I'm trying to make is we put a lot of time and energy and money and thought and pre-planning where one sits, where somebody is going to sit. But the question we're going to ask this morning is, have we invested any of those actions in the seat that matters most? And the verse that I'm going to uh, be jumping from, if you have a copy of God's word this morning, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And here... Uh, The Bible says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And this morning, uh, we want to notice that the Bible and this verse assures us of a judgment, right? This day is as sure as death. You know, Benjamin Franklin is often uh, the one who's quoted as saying, uh, this, this term, this phrase that I'm sure you've heard, but in this world, nothing can be said to be certain but death and taxes, right? You, you've heard this, but the, the Christian, we can add one more to that. We can say death, taxes, and the judgment. And the resurrection day um, of the resurrection of Christ is God's guarantee that men shall be judged one day. In Acts chapter 17, when, when Paul went to Athens and he was preaching be, before the Gentiles, before the Athenians, remember he was walking around and there were all of these idols everywhere in that city. There was even that idol to the unknown God. And as he was teaching them about Christ, about Jesus, he said, 
He said to them, therefore, over, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that everyone should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See, Paul said that the resurrection of Christ is God's guarantee that man shall be judged one day. And the fact that man is responsible to God implies an accounting, an accounting that we will have one day. And Christ is that judge before that we will stand before. And it's his words that we will be judged by. John 12, 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. It's the words that I spoke which will judge him on the last day. So therefore, it is important for us, for us to understand and to know about this seat that matters most, the judgment seat of Christ. Again, are we investing our time, our research, our energy, our planning, our sharing of this seat that matters most? And I have three points this morning, and then the lesson will be yours. But the first thing I want us to notice about the judgment seat is that it's an inevitable seat. Again, for we must all appear. You know, the, the, today in today's world, you know, we, we have this uh, new uh, sort of fad, uh, you know, of appointment reminders. Uh, you know, if you, it's not, uh, it's pretty typical for us to make business appointments and social appointments and, and medical appointments, but later we'll cancel them or maybe we'll reschedule them. In my past profession, I was working for a school district, and you know, again, I was an accountant for the school district. And one of the things in my job that I had to do was I had to set up these budget meetings every year to talk to the principals, to the, the department heads of the district. And I would set these up a couple months in advance. But there was always this one principal, this one principal that I would email her a couple of months in advance and say, hey, let's pick a date so that we can have this meeting, this budget meeting. I'd never hear from her. I'd eventually go through her secretary and we'd set up a meeting and that everyone would agree to and that meeting day would come and we'd show up. My boss and I, we would show up and she'd be gone. There would be some emergency that was in the district and she couldn't be there and so the secretary would run the meeting. It happened time and time again that this principal, uh, the same drill every year, there was this resistance, this no-show. She did not want to have this meeting. She didn't want to sit down and talk about her budgets or this meeting. And the point I'm trying to make is this meeting that we are going to have one day, this judgment day, there will be no cancellations. There will be no rescheduling. There will be no second chances. And again, you know, there's no excuse for us not to be reminded of things in this life. Because, you know, if you have a smartphone, you set up a, a meeting, uh, maybe a medical appointment, you're going to get a text message. You'll probably get an email. You'll get a voicemail. Uh, whatever, you know, it's not just like the old days where they'll send a postcard in the mail. But there are all of these different ways for them to communicate with you and to contact you. I was reading in an article that it's still a $150 billion problem in the United States alone of people missing appointments. And so that's why these companies have been investing in this, this software, that why they have been making these reminders over and over again. But here's the thing, the Bible the scriptures are full of reminders for us. They're full of reminders for us of the judgment days. Jesus is going to talk about it. Paul is going to write about it. Peter is going to write about it. Turn to Matthew 25 uh, this morning. In Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, Jesus is setting up the judgment day scene. He, he's telling uh, 
those around him about this day, about the judgment day. He says, starting in verse 31 of Matthew 25, it says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, that, that verse 34, that is what we all want to hear one day. Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well, how, Jesus? How? He says in verse 35, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And then verse 41, he says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. See, Jesus is reminding them of, of the judgment day, that there's going to be a day that he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And this day is going to happen. Uh, verse 46, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In Romans chapter 14, starting in verses 10 through 12, Paul has something to say similar to what he says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But he says here in Romans 14 verse 10, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. And then each one of us will give an account to himself to God. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, verse 5, says that Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead. Again, over and over and over, these constant reminders of us, uh, of the judgment day. Again, there's no rescheduling, no double booking, no mixing up of files. This is a day that is sure to happen. It's inevitable, this appointment that has been made. The question is, will we be on Christ's right side? Will we be on the sheep's? Or will we be to his left, to the goat's? It is inevitable. Are we ready to stand before Christ on that day? We also want to notice that this seat is informed. Turn to Psalm 139, if you would. In Psalm 139, David is writing about these great attributes of God. And he starts off by saying in verse 1 through 6 that God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. See, David is saying that, God, you are all-knowing even before I, I, I sit down. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. 
You know what word I'm going to speak on my tongue before it happens. And then continuing on in verse 7 through 12, he says that God is ever present, that he is everywhere. He says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. He says that God is ever present, that he's omnipresent. And then finally, he's going to say that God is all powerful. Look at verses uh, 13 through 16. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. David is getting the point across that God is all-knowing, that he's ever-present, that he's all-powerful. The Hebrews writer says something similar in Hebrews 4.13. He says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him unto whom we have to give an account. So when we read passages like these, when we read passages like these, why do we still act as if God will not find out? Paul, when he was writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, he said, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but some of those they follow after. And what he's saying here is that, that people, there are some people in this life who live in open rebellion. right? They don't put on any pretenses or, or a charade, and therefore their sins will go before them to judgment. But there are sins that are done in secret, he says, and those are still known by the Lord. See, the God of Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. Psalm 121, verse 4. In the book of Joshua, in the book of Joshua, by Joshua uh, chapter 7, Israel is enjoying military success. They've, they've conquered the kings of Sihon and the king of Og. And chapter 6, they're going into Jericho. Uh, they're crossing over into the land of Canaan, and they're going to go to, to Jericho. Now, we're all familiar with the account of Jericho where God tells them that they're going to walk around the city for six days. And then on the seventh day, they're going to walk around seven times and they're going to shout and blow the trumpets and the walls are going to come crumbling down and then they're going to have victory in battle. But if you remember, before they did that, God told them that the things that they plunder, the the spoils of this war, they are not to keep, but they are to put into the house of God. They're to put in God's treasury as, as spoils of war for him, honor to him. And so Israel goes in to Jericho and they they do all those things that God commands them and the walls come tumbling down and they take those things, the gold and the silver, uh, the valuables, they put it into God's treasury. But then we find out that Israel goes on to their next challenge. They go to the town of the city of Ai. They go there. They don't take as much men this time, but they're defeated. They're, They're chased out of there. Well, why? Why was that? Well, it found out in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, that there was sin in the camp. There was a man by the name of Achan who found some gold and some silver and some beautiful clothing. And he took those things back to his tent. He dug a hole in the ground, put those things in the ground, covered it up. 
thought he got away with it. He thought he got away with it. But because of his actions, because he thought that he could get away with it, they were defeated by Ai, by the, by the city of Ai. And so they determined by Lot who had done this, where did the sin come from in the camp, and it came down to Achan and his family. And if you remember, Achan and his family were taken outside the camp. They were stoned. They were burned. Um, the sins of one man destroyed this whole family. And, and the point of this illustration is that God is informed. As Moses said in, Mo, in Numbers 32, verse 23, he said, your sins will find you out. If we believe that we can trick and hide our actions before the Lord, we're mistaken. See, we're good at hiding those things from men. We can do that. We can hide, our th- we can hide those actions, those sinful actions before men. Uh, we can hide those in our tents, and maybe they'll never be found out. But before we go to the judgment seat of Christ, we need to ask ourselves this question. What is in our tents? What is in our tents that we need to take care of, to dig out, to get rid of before that day of judgment? Because, again, friends, it's an informed seat. Well, the last point I wanted us to notice is that not only is it an inevitable seat, not only is it an informed seat, but it's also an impartial seat. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, each one of us, see, God is, he is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. And so because of that, his judgment will be impartial. See, the, the, the rich will have no advantage over the poor in this life. The educated will have no advantage over the uneducated. Those who are politically strong in this world will have no advantage. Those who are religious in name only will, won't have an advantage. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, again, men will be judged based on the word of Christ in light of his obedience or his disobedience. And then some people, uh, we, we tend to lose focus on that when we're going through the ease of life, when th- things are going good. Uh, look in Luke chapter 12. This will be the last passage I'll have you turn to. But in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16, we, we read of this parable that Jesus gives of the, we often refer to as the rich fool. The rich fool in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16, Jesus was telling again a parable and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will, st- who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, Jesus told this parable of this farmer who had a very prosperous year. Again, his land was very productive. 
And instead of thinking of how he could give back to the Lord, what he could do for the Lord's cause, he only thought of his, himself, about his retirement, about his relaxing, or his relaxing times ahead. You know, th- this man we see, uh, he did not have to worry about investments or, or going bankrupt. He was a rich individual. He was wealthy. And, and we see that he was pretty smart as well. He gave himself his own financial advice. And as a farmer, what did he do? He decided that he needed to tear down his old barns and build newer Bigger ones that he could live on and store his crops for years to come. But as we learned in this parable, his thinking was wrong. He was wrong. God actually spoke to him and saying, you fool this very night. Your soul is required of you. And I know that this parable of, of, the, of, of the rich fool is about really about covetousness, materialism, having a lot. But it does. It gives us a good um, a lesson, a good implication on the impartiality of God. See, again, we have a rich man. He's educated, seem, he's materially, materially blessed. Things are going good for him in this life. And notice this. He didn't plan on a life of crime. He didn't plan to live unethically. He just wanted comfort. Right? He just wanted pleasure. He, he said to himself, soul, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But none of these things work to advantage. Right? None of these things work to his advantage because God shows no impartiality. There is no partiality with God. Proverbs writer said in Proverbs 22, verse 2, he said, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. We must give an account to God one day. We must all appear. It's inevitable before the judgment seat of Christ, this, the seat that's informed and so that each one of us, it's, again, it's an impartial seat. And Christ will eventually say one of two things to us. Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you or depart. I never knew you. There's a song that we sometimes sing in our hymn books. You know, there's a great day coming. You're familiar with this. There's a great day coming, a great day coming by and by when the saints and the sinners shall be parted left and right. Are you ready for that day to come? Again, we, we, after we leave here, after we dismiss after Bible class, you might go home and sit in your favorite recliner. Or maybe you're going to have lunch at home and you're going to sit at your, your spot at the dinner table. And th- those are good things. Those are things that we put a lot of stock into. But have you considered this morning the importance of the seat that matters most, the judgment seat of Christ? This is the seat that requires our attention this morning. This morning, if you're not a... Ch- a child of God, I, I do have a question for you. Are you ready for the judgment day? Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Paul said there are two groups who are not. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord and those who do not know our Lord. And those will, will pay the price of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord forever. We know the Bible tells us that to become a child of God, to become a Christian, that we need to hear his word and believe that Jesus is the son of God, to repent of our sins, you know, turn away from those things that are contrary to God, uh, turn, to, turn to him, confess Jesus as Lord and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. And at that point, the Lord will add you to his church and we can live a faithful life for him from that point forward, doing those things that he has asked us to do to trust and obey him. We would love that opportunity to help you uh, if, that, if that's your need this morning, to study with you or to baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins. But if you are a child of God here this morning, I, I do have the same question. Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready for that day? It's inevitable. 
We can't put this off. We can't reschedule it. Are we prepared? It's an informed day. We can't trick God. We can't have anything hidden in our tents. We need to get those things out before it's eternally too late. And again, it's impartial. No matter how many good things we do in this life, we are still going to be judged based on the words of Christ if we, if we uh, uh, trusted him and obeyed him. This morning, if we can help you in any way with any of those things, we would love to come for, or for you to come forward now and make those requests known or speak to us afterwards as together we stand uh, and sing this song of invitation.